Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Nigella Lawson, and my latest cookbook is Cook, Eat, Repeat, just published by Echo. What I found so interesting was Cook, Eat, Repeat is the pre-pandemic title, but you wrote the cookbook during the lockdown with the recipes pretty much fully developed. I'd love to hear about that process. Well, yes, fully developed, but I did change some because left to my own devices, uh, which I very much was, I carry on testing and retesting, and so... I, in a sense, you know, you could carry on developing a recipe for as long as you have it in front of you. I had the book sort of mapped out. I'd written a teeny bit of it, and I had all the recipes ready, but I found the different time in which I was writing it inevitably had an impact on the recipes and my writing. And so I ditched one chapter altogether, which would have had, you know, larger. Uh, quantities, you know, sort of bigger recipes. And that seemed obviously unlikely to happen. It didn't seem right to be doing that now. And so instead, I replaced the chapter about entertaining, which was going to be called How to Invite Friends for Dinner Without Hating Them or Yourself, which seemed dizzyingly inappropriate for a number of reasons. And I instead used a quote from a Byron poem, Much Depends on Dinner, also the title of a Margaret Visser book about what we eat and where it comes from. So I, I wanted my about more about the family meal. So that changed quite a bit. I mean, the tenor of the recipe is probably not so much because my cooking, whether I have people round or, you know, just the usual crowd or that I wasn't cooking for anyone during lockdown because I was by myself, you know, it is very much the same sort of food, family food. But I added more recipes for one and I think probably more mindful of substitutions and how to vary each recipe. So although conceived pre-pandemic, it has that overlay of really sensing that so many people were intensely bound up with what they were going to cook, what they were going to eat. And I'm like that anyway. I mean, that's what I think from the moment I wake up in the morning, I'm I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat that day. And under the circumstances we were all living, you know, other people came around to my way of thinking. So in the cookbook, you talk about repetition, Mm. which um, we were um, cooking, eating and repeating all year long. But, But you talk about repetition, not in kind of a drudgery sort of way, but in a freeing way that repeated actions will teach us ease in the kitchen. Yes, I think what I feel very much is that for people who don't cook an awful lot, you know, obviously not your listeners, but um, for people who don't cook a lot, there's a sort of fear of making something new as if it's some totally novel situation they're going to find themselves in. But the reality is, even when you cook something new, you are relying on steps that you use all the time when you cook, whether it's chopping or stirring. And the more often you do those little tasks, I mean, nearly all savory recipes, you know, start with a, you know chopping an onion and frying it. And the more you do that, the more your body and your whole self sort of gets into the swing of it. And because the, you know, the steps 
are sort of so often returned to, I think it frees you for thinking, even if it goes beyond the scope of the recipe, it frees you to start thinking, oh, I could add this, that would make it a bit different, or this would act in much the same way. Because the framework is there, you can be either more playful or more adventurous or just frankly using what you've got in your kitchen at any time. And I think that whether you're cooking or whether you're living generally, having a framework is soothing and gives you a sense of security. But obviously, none of us want to get bored either in the kitchen or in life. And therefore, you still have the ability, and I encourage it, to be a bit spontaneous between these fixed points. And I think cooking relies on that. Repetition is not diametrically opposed to innovation. I think there's a dynamic relationship between the two. So how is the cookbook organized in terms of chapters and recipes? <laughs> organized is a very kind word, <laughs> given the <laughs> Each book I've done, in a way, I like the chapters to reflect the personality of the book. And I knew I very much wanted to write about ingredients that I adore and that I cook in many different ways. And for example, you know, A is for anchovy and the rhubarb chapter. It's fairly idiosyncratic, but I think that in a way a, a book has to be expression of one's enthusiasm. And this one very much is. I also wanted to talk about certain types of food. So there's a chapter called A Loving Defense of Brown Food, which on the whole is stews and braises. In between that, there are other ideas that I wanted to investigate. I didn't think they had to match one another for extent or variety. So I knew I wanted to write about pleasure in eating. And there's a chapter just called Pleasures, which was going to be called Death to the Guilty Pleasure. But I decided to accentuate the positive uh, rather than dwell on the negative. And when I start writing, I always write at great length. Uh, initially, you know, there were going to be more ingredients chapters, but I felt I'd rather just write at length about what I love. And so in a sense, each chapter is its own uh, microcosm, even though, of course, they're linked and I refer in between them. But I didn't feel the need for a big organizational principle. I felt that, in a sense, that my enthusiasm for foodstuff or the ferocity with which I hold an opinion, that was enough to link the chapters. In the Pleasures chapter, you wrote, mm. Yes, a bar of chocolate is a true joy, but so is a plate of garlicky spinach or lemony salad. I'd never really mm. thought much about the term guilty pleasures, but now I kind mm. of despise it. Yes, I do. I, 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 my jaw tenses at the very... Uh, notion. I mean, often people use it without thinking, without meaning to imply all the baggage that goes with it. But I think it warps your sense of what you're seeking in food. And in different moods, you want to eat a different thing. And I don't like it if someone says to me, if I'm making a bowl of vegetables, oh, you're being very healthy, because I don't think that's a very um, helpful way of thinking about food. And, you know, whatever's deemed healthy in one stage is then 
you know, suddenly thought of as wicked at some other. And the reality is you eat a variety of different foodstuffs, ideally, and I think then your body and your appetite finds the balance. So in your A's for anchovies chapter, you have a recipe for spaghetti with chard, chilies, and anchovies that I made over the weekend. Can you describe this recipe? I certainly can. Well, over the holidays in 2019, I believe, and that's a a fairly late addition to the book, I was saying with friends in the countryside in Cornwall, which is a lot of beautiful, rugged coastline southwest of England, and went to a restaurant where I ate pretty much this dish, and I thought, I've got to make this. And I didn't ask for the recipe because it was fairly evident what was going on in it. And in terms of repetition, as we were just talking about, it falls back on something I do an awful lot, and there are about three or four, I think, examples in the book, which is when I cook pasta, I put vegetables with it as well as the other, perhaps more intense flavorings. And this really is garlic with anchovies first in olive oil and if you, you know, over very low heat, you know, to stir the anchovy fillet for quite a while, a few minutes, until they seem to dissolve into the oil. It's salty, but it's more than that. It's like a, uh, providing just, as I say, depth and richness, umami, we've learned to call it. And with that, you know, garlic, teeny bit of chili flakes, and that provides such a rich, not necessarily very large in quantity, but a really rich dressing, the pasta, which is, with the rainbow chard, you could use any green vegetables, really. But of course, when you cook chard, you have to cook the leaves and the stems or the ribs, if you want to cook them separately. So there's a lot of contrast going on, and I think that when you eat, Taste is one part of the equation, but of course, to deliver that, you need a a very important second part, which is texture, and that also makes it this very filling, and, you know, the blandness or the sweet semolina blandness in a way, I don't know, bland perhaps is not a good word for it, but I can't think of another one right now, of, of the pasta, and that sort of mineral quality of the green leafy vegetables, really both of them in their different ways and their opposing ways really can take the hard hit of the garlic and anchovy. An exciting part of following along with one of your recipes is I can hear your voice in my head. So, for example, (laughs) in the spaghetti recipe you wrote, when the pasta water has come to a boil, salt it, it will rise up excitedly. And I can vividly hear you saying that. (laughs) Well, it's not, you know, in a way... I feel that once you abandon this aim of getting a recipe to fit on one page and one page alone, you have the freedom and the space to put your voice in it. So it isn't just the barest instruction. And I think that some degree a recipe is also a commentary rather than just a description of steps needed. In the book, you wrote... um In writing recipes, you had to learn another language, and I'm interested Um, in hearing about that. Well, I was a journalist for a long time, actually, before I started writing recipes, and not a food journalist. And what interested me, and I'd studied languages at college as well, that I felt 
Food obviously has enormous reach and it's an emotional language. You know, it's overlaid with meaning, but flavor, taste, texture, the feel of food, this is a this is the realm of the senses and language is abstract in a way and I wanted to find a way of using language to convey the fullness of the experience of making food for it's not enough to give a description of what steps are required. I feel that I want to convey what it feels like to be cooking that particular recipe and to be able to describe the dish in a way that makes it live vividly before the reader has taken the step to cook it. Uh, and for that, you often have to use metaphor or a language that is evocative rather than merely boldly descriptive. Uh, and that interests me, but it gives me pleasure that, that I, I savor the words as much as I savor the food. And I think that's why your cookbooks can either live on our counter or on our bedside table. And well, that's another thing to say. And I think that I've always felt that, uh, you know, the cookbooks I love are ones that have a dual purpose. You know, I think the recipes absolutely have to be utterly reliable. But I also think it has to be a good read. It has to provide nourishment at both those levels. In the What is a Recipe chapter, there's a beautiful photo of your grandmother's recipes. So you put them in, I think I heard this, you put them in a special place and forgot about them? Well, yes. I mean, I had them ages ago and then my aunts had them and then I got them back. And I guess when I last moved house, I just, you know, put them somewhere and then that, that was it. But it was sometime in the early stages of lockdown over here. I dare say, you know, I might decided I'd have a, you know, decluttering project, which is sort of, I live in with so much clutter, mostly in the kitchen. And I found her books again, and um, I started going through them, and that was the end of my decluttering and cleaning up project. <laughs> the beginning but, uh, and the end. <laughs> but, but very pleasure, pleasurably so. Yeah, during the lockdown here in New York City, I felt compelled to rearrange my kitchen. Did you rearrange anything in your kitchen? Um, I started trying to, um, you know, find you go through things that you know said things like used before two thousand and four to see if you know what cleaning up could be done. But actually, I was very busy with writing, and occasionally I would attempt to do something like that. Just love writing. I also do anything to put it off. You know, I re- it was really writing and retesting recipes again and again, wanting to add new ones because. I always think that's what makes a a book alive. So in Cook, Eat, Repeat, you wrote, I relish eating alone and cooking for myself. Some recipes in the cookbook are for one, like your glorious fried chicken sandwich on page 67. (laughs) In the recipe, it says, serves one ecstatically. Well, it really does. For me, it does, at any rate. And then I came up with this cookie recipe because I, I think I just must have wanted some cookies. And I didn't want to make, you know, normally you have to make so many, even with one egg, it makes often, you know, at least a dozen, sometimes two dozen. So I worked pretty hard on how to make a cookie that tastes like a proper cookie, but without egg, because 
it, it seemed wasteful to beat an egg and then take two teaspoons out. So, so I was very happy with that. And there's a recipe that's been very popular in the book, which I call chicken in a pot with lemon and orchard. And it's one of those family, one-dish, warming meals that I wanted to eat it again, and I was by myself, so I wanted to work out a way of saying, how would you adapt that just for one person? And there were quite a few recipes I've done that for, because, you know, sometimes it is as simple as just dividing things, but often you, you have to look into adapting more freely. So I want to do that. And I did love cooking for myself. I mean, I always had cooked for myself, but I've never cooked for myself exclusively for such a long period of time. Last weekend, I made the chicken in a pot. It is so darn good. Oh, I'm so pleased. The leeks turn out so creamy in the orzo, and there's something so homey about that dish. There really is, and yet it's much bolder in seasoning than a lot of those old-fashioned dishes are. And sometimes it's mistakenly assumed that, in a way, food to be comforting must be sort of quietly spiced. And this isn't. I mean, it doesn't sort of hit you over the head, but the also pasta and the leeks taste even sweeter. So it's a... a real family favorite over here. So I missed making it and I enjoyed coming up with the version for one just using chicken thighs. I also made fear-free fish stew on page 184. (laughs) Yeah. So good. And the cumin and the turmeric and the cinnamon and the sweet potatoes and tomato. I can go on and on. But I'm curious about Mm. the name of the recipe, fear-free. I don't know what it's like stateside, but I think it is similar from conversations I've had. People are inordinately frightened of cooking fish. It tends to be expensive. It's very easy to overcook. And if you're not cooking it a lot, I think it can be tricky. So I wanted a recipe that wasn't tricky, didn't involve spit-level timing. And because when you put the fish into the stew at the very end, you cook it just for a short time in the pan when it's on the stove. And then you turn it off and you leave it to cook much more gently with the heat turned off. And it's pretty impossible to overcook that way. And it makes the fish so tender. And I I suppose I also wanted, I mean, in truth, there are many ways you could have uh, taken the fear factor out. But I felt very much, apart from my slight weakness for alliteration, I did feel (laughs) that it really, I wanted to make sort of signal up ahead, look, you can do this and it's not frightening and it's not stressful. And so I felt I had to announce that in the title because I I know that a lot of people, they see a fish recipe and they turn the page over rather hurriedly if it's not just a plain bit of salmon or something. So, so. so I suppose that those were the reasons. And I enjoy playing with titles. You know, like the cookies I was talking to you about just a, you know, a moment ago, you know, they're called Mine All Minds, you know, sweet and salty chocolate cookies. And I enjoy that. You know, there's, I enjoy coming up with titles that have a bit of character. I have to contain myself. And sometimes a very plain title is also what's needed. The piece de resistance was my very first pavlova 
on page 243. Uh, oh, yes, with the petite pavlova, the little one with two egg whites. Oh, my gosh. So for some reason, I've been so intimidated by that recipe all these years, and it's so easy. It really is. And also, you know, if it cracks a bit on the outside, that's rather beautiful. But so pretty. a pavlova is a wonderful dessert. And it's not eaten as much in the States as it is over here. And it's just a wonderful dessert to do. And because you do the base in advance, I mean, I don't know, soon we'll all be having people over, I guess. But, you know, essentially it makes life much easier if you're planning a meal. You don't want to have to cook all of it all in one go, especially if you have people coming. And so it's easy on a number of levels. But I mean, I, you know, as I've said before, I'm a pavaholic. You know, I can't stop making pavlovas. Same here. I've made two this week. (laughs) (laughs) So now to my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. Okay, I can tell you what I had last night for dinner. I had squid salad, like a calamari salad, some squid briefly cooked and then steeped in lime juice, fish sauce, soy sauce, and some ginger and garlic and fresh red chili peppers. And and this is a strange thing to do, but I also had, and they're very much similar flavorings, some of the ruby noodles, which are in the book, which is cooked spaghetti for half its time in water and then you finish the cooking in beetroot juice from a carton you know I, I don't have a juicer or anything and you know with added flavorings which you know were very similar to those in the squid salad I like the mixture of sweetness heat and sourness and I had a bit of both left over and I mixed them and I added a teeny bit of avocado and a lot of freshly chopped mint Where can we find you on the web and social media? Well, I have a website called nigella.com and a huge percentage of my recipes can be found there. Although they present in metric, if you press a little button on each recipe, it will convert instantly to US measures. And on Twitter, I'm Nigella underscore Lawson. And on Instagram, I'm Nigella Lawson, one word. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Nigella, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Well, it's been such a pleasure for me. And do you know how wonderful it is for me to hear about the recipes you've cooked? And it, it just, well, it warms the cockles of my heart. And thank you. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast. Cookery by the Book.